today we're kicking off a new series. Uh, every July, we participate with the church in Denver, which is a combination of about a dozen churches in Denver. And we all teach, do sermons on the same topic during the month of July. And uh, the reason that we do that is because we really think when God looks at a city like Denver, he sees just one church. Everybody was following him. He sees one church. And so kind of coming together in the spirit of unity, we teach together on the same topic in July. And uh, some of you may not know this, but uh, about a year, a little over a year ago, Platt Park Church received a grant uh, from the Lilly Foundation uh, with the Kaleo Project to invest in young adults and millennial ministry. And it's been very fun. This past year started under the leadership of Gary Ehrenholt, and now Ann Coughlin is leading the charge to see a growing uh, connection among young adults here in our community and um, an outreach through this community. It's been very, very cool. So today, super excited for you to hear from one such person in that age group. Her name is Christine Hirsch, and I've had the privilege of being a mentor for her um, the, over the last year and a half. And from time to time, I will mentor seminary students. And uh, every now and again, I meet one and I say, oh, this one's really really dear to me, really special, and just what God is doing in her life to change the world around her, like we just said um, in the kids' sermon. So glad you get to hear from her. I have been uh, very grateful to listen to her practice sermons for her preaching class, and in doing that, I thought, I would love for our church to hear from, from you as well. You know, it's really fun. So Vaughn, I'm calling you out, but Vaughn Swanson, who's on our elder board and here this morning, was my mentor when I was at Denver Seminary. So kind of fun, the circle and the loop. But um, grateful for Christine opening up the scriptures with us this morning. The sermon topic for the month of July is around the Psalms of Asaph and um, Psalms of Lament. She's going to kick that off, tell us a little bit more about that. So let me pray together as she comes up. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for bringing us through the night into this new day to know you, to walk with you, and to walk with one another. We come in this morning, God, all different places, some of us full of joy, some full of questions and fear, some in places of grief and sadness. But no matter where we come in, we share, as we enter worship, a desire to hear a fresh word from you and to experience the touch of your Holy Spirit in our lives. And so we open ourselves up to whatever you might want to say to us this morning. We pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Would you join me in giving a Platt Park welcome to Christine? Creation sings your glory. Creation sings your glory. Well, good morning, Platt Park. I'm so glad to be with y'all this morning. As soon as you said, my name is Christine. I am a fourth year MDiv, Master of Divinity student at Denver Seminary, which means I am almost done. Like, I need to like finish the thing, get the piece of paper, and like get out of there. 
Uh, God's been great. Also, G2G, like I got to get out of there. So um, <laughs> I am from Houston originally, so if you hear a little bit of an East Texas drawl and or the words y'all or all y'all every six sentences or so, uh, you'll know where that comes from. Before I get started this morning, I actually want to express a lot of gratitude to Platt Park. Uh, sometimes when you walk up to someone and you say, hi, hey, I know you, but you don't know me, you get like a crinkled brow and like a step backwards from the other person. But I'm actually going to say that to you because you actually have supported and carried me through your pastors for the last four years. I've been seeing uh, Susan Stein, one of your pastors here, as my spiritual director for the last three and a half years, and Susie has been my mentor for the last year and a half. And so these two women have carried me through uh, pits of despair and time high pits of uh, not pits of joy, but high places of joy. I don't know what a pit of joy is. Um, and they have led me through uh, tears and through anger and ultimately deeper and deeper into the heart of Christ. And so I am so thankful for y'all as a community and for your pastors. Now, last October, on October 28th, I was hanging out over at Steam. Y'all know Steam Espresso Bar, the coffee shop around the, that, around the corner. Um, it's such an interesting place because there's always really good people watching there. It's always pretty crowded. Somehow the, like, baby to puppy ratio is, like, always about, like, one to one. It's pretty even. And so uh, this particular day I was trying to study, really procrastinating by people watching, and I noticed this woman sitting in front of me. She was, she was about my age, I'm 31. Her back was towards me, and her computer screen was up. Now, she was on Facebook, and so I was kind of curious, because, like, why are millennials still on Facebook? Like, that's the baby boomer thing now. So I kind of started to, like, I, kinda st I was curious. So I kind of started to, like, read her screen some, which is like, okay, was I eavesdropping? I, I mean, I think it's really subjective. Uh, I mean, I have great eyesight, so that's not really my fault. And, you know, I can hear really well, especially when I want to, so selectively. So this is not really important to the conversation. But uh, so I was reading her screen, and I noticed that she was from Pittsburgh. And the reason I knew that is because people were expressing terms of bereavement and grief from the shooting at Tree of Life Synagogue the day before on October 27th. Now, if you remember, it was just in 2018 that this happened. Uh, a shooter went into the Shabbat, the Sabbath service on a Saturday, and he killed 11 people. Seven people were injured, including himself. He was later charged with over 60 federal crimes, and in court he declared that he was not guilty for a hate crime. And so I kind of wondered for this woman what she was going to do on Facebook what status update she was going to provide. And so after she reads her friend's statuses, uh, she finally decides to write her own status. And so she starts, like, hacking away, and she's fiercely going at it, writing a bunch of paragraphs, and then all of a sudden she stops and deletes the whole thing, deletes the whole thing. And I wonder if maybe she just didn't have, couldn't find the right words, like as if enough words on her screen had already been said, like what could she possibly say that could provide some like semblance of peace and hope during this tragedy that just split her city in two? So she tries again. She tries a second time. This time she types a little slower, a little more thoughtfully. But then that's not good enough either because, and I wonder like, because well, what could you possibly say? And this is sometimes how we think about these tragedies too. Maybe I'll just stay silent. 
because I couldn't possibly say anything else, and what if I trigger somebody? Like, what could, what could I possibly say that would make a difference? So she tries a third time, and she gets it. She only writes three words. I wondered if she would write thoughts and prayers, and she doesn't. She, the only thing that she writes is these three words. She says, my heart hurts. My heart hurts. And I think her experience really symbolizes how we experience tragedy, too, We just don't know what to say, and maybe silence is better, and how could we possibly provide a semblance of peace at all? What she did next was really interesting. She closes down Facebook and goes into Excel and starts working on a report. Now, I did not eavesdrop on her report because that's boring. Um, (laughs) And, you know, I, I kind of wonder if this sort of symbolizes our experience of tragedy, too. Maybe we just kind of push things away, like push them off to the side, press them down, Because what if they all come up at the same time? What if we become unhinged? What if we fall apart at steam? With this girl looking over your shoulder, right? It just it it doesn't it just doesn't connect. And I think I think really ultimately this question, this uh, this phrase that she had, my heart hurts. It really embodies a a bigger picture that we're looking at in all of these tragedies and violences that are happening. At some point, we kind of wonder, like, when they're going to stop, when it's actually going to get better. We kind of, if, it feels like this, like, kind of topsy-turvy time where we're, we're looking back to the past and remembering how it was like and wanting it to be, uh, wanting, it, wanting today to be like it was before. I was in middle school when the Columbine shootings happened right down the street. And I remember walking into my middle school library and pausing and thinking, could a shooting happen here at Memorial Middle School in Houston, Texas? Could that, could that happen? And then I remembered what my parents had told me, and they had said, no, it was a freak, act, freak thing. This is never going to happen again. No, of course not. So I held on to that, and that was, what I, that was what, what I walked with. And then two years later, 9-11 happened. And then particular to Houston, more and more violent hurricanes started happening. It just feels like we're in this world that feels kind of hopeless sometimes. There's a modern book of prayers called Every, Every Holy Moment, and I think this quote really summarizes it well. There's so much lost in this world, so much that aches and groans and shivers for want of redemption, so much that seems dislocated, upended, desecrated, and unhinged. Even in our own hearts, we bear the mark of all that is broken. And I think as Christians, we're really asking God a question. We're really asking God God, where are you in all of this? Surely you will make it stop. Surely it will end. God, where are you? Now, we're talking about the Psalms of lament today, but I want to back up and talk about the Psalms in general for a moment. Whether you've been to church a thousand times or this is your first time, or you just don't remember what all the books are about, because there's a lot of books in the Bible, then I completely get it. It's good to talk about these things. So the Psalms are the ancient prayer book of the church. They describe human experiences to God, with God, and about God, and span the whole spectrum of human emotions. John Calvin says that the Psalms are like a mirror, that just like a mirror shows us what we look like on the outside, that the Psalms show us what's going on on the inside. The Psalms are reflective, and they draw us out. Now, the Psalms are ordered in a particular order. They're ordered on purpose, and they have certain categories. They have certain types, like about creation and wisdom and law. 
And so the one that we're looking at is the Psalms of Lament because we feel like that they give words for a particular time in history, particularly one of violence and of tragedy. So the Psalms of Lament, lament itself is an act of bereavement. It is a passionate expression of grief. Now you may be familiar with grief in the context of death, and that certainly is part of grief, but really grief spans a whole variety of experiences. It is this sense of loss, of, of, of a craving for what was for that to be now. So it could be a loss of a job or a friendship changing or a family shifting or something much more violent than that, like death. It's probably not like the Broncos losing. Uh, it's probably not your phone falling out of your pocket in the toilet. Uh, that's really not what we're talking about here. So if the Psalms of Lament express a passionate grief, a passionate grief, we're talking about like a weeping and a wailing and a beating your chest and a pounding of the floor and asking this question, God, where are you? That's really the type of grief that we're talking about. And if you've experienced this type of weeping and wailing before, then you know that it's actually very, very honest. It's very honest. So here's an example from Psalm 31. It says, Be merciful to me, Lord, for I am in distress. My eyes grow weak with sorrow, my soul and body with grief. My life is consumed by anguish and my years by groaning. My strength fails because of my affliction and my bones grow weak. That's a very honest, passionate plea for grief. Most often, the Psalms of Lament call for an end to oppression. They call for justice. They call for God to right the tables. They call for God to kind of quiet this topsy-turviness that, that, we, that we feel in our current world. Ultimately, they're a plea for God to make things right. It's said that a minimum of a third of the lines of the Psalms, and up to a half, are lines of lament. So that means half of the psalmist prayers and songs are actually a cry for justice, a cry for God to make things right. Now there are two types of, of uh, lament psalms that we'll be talking about. The first type is called individual psalms of lament, and the second type is called communal. And so the individual ones, we get really well. We're kind of an individualistic culture. There's a lot of I and me language. It's very personal. Most often they're by David. So let's take a look at what one of those looks like in Psalm 88. From my youth I have suffered and been close to death. I have borne your terrors and am in despair. An honest, passionate plea of grief. Now what I'll be talking about today is communal lament. And that's a little bit different. It's about a national tragedy, some sort of disaster that affects an entire community. Now for Israel that might be exile, that might be oppression. What's interesting about the communal laments is we don't really know the exact time in history that they happened. There's not enough historical information in those particular psalms to know where we could place it on the historical timeline. And that's actually really helpful to us because a psalmist could have written words 2,600 years ago, and we can still use those same words today to describe our experience and our longing for God. And this idea of an, of an honest plea with God, I kind of wonder how that sits with you. Maybe that feels a little bit unfaithful to potentially give God all of these complaints that you have, to lament about how things should be, to kind of wag the finger at God and say like, hey, can you like fix this, please? But I think what we'll see in the Psalms of Lament is they are anything but unfaithful. It is anything but a lack of faith. 
So we're going to look at Psalm 80 today. And what we know about Psalm 80 as a communal lament is that it's probably written in the 7th century B.C., over 2,600 years ago. It was during some time of oppression or exile. No one really knows. It's conjecture after that. So we'll, we'll look at the first three verses today. Uh, I won't go further because I just want to summarize the rest. It's a little bit repetitive. Uh, so I'll read through them, and then we'll talk about these three verses. Hear us, shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who sit enthroned between the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh. Awaken your might, come and save us. Restore us, O God. Make your face shine on us that we may be saved. And can you go back to that first slide? Thank you. So what these first two lines are essentially saying, you, you may recognize this word shepherd. And if uh, you've been in church for a while, you may think, oh, shepherd, like Psalm 23, that's nice. Like, the Lord is my shepherd, he leads me beside still waters. That is very, like, pleasant imagery. But the, the tone is actually much different. The psalmist is saying, hey, God, remember in the past when you were like a shepherd? Remember when you led us like a flock? Remember before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh? Yeah, you're not doing that right now. Like, we, ne- we need you here because we don't know where you are. We need you to do that again. Will you please awaken your might? God, where are you? That is the tone of this lament. And if we go to the next line, this is actually a refrain that repeats throughout Psalm 80. Restore us, O God, make your face shine on us that we may be saved. Now, some of you also may recognize the second line here, make your face shine on us. And that is from a benediction that you've, you've heard before. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. It's from Deuteronomy. It's called the Aaronic Blessing. Uh, if you recognize that, I want to offer you some Bible points. I don't know what they're for. I don't know where they go. Can you redeem them for a stuffed plush animal that you'll never use again? Maybe. I'm not really sure. But essentially, this sounds like a praise, but it's actually a lament. This is, this is saying... Um, referring back to Moses. Moses was the person who, up to this point, was the most intimate with God. He had the most personal relationship with God that could have possibly have occurred between a human and the divine. And so it was said that Moses was like face-to-face with God. He was like nose-to-nose with the divine. And when God's face shone upon you in scriptures, it meant that you had God's full shalom. You had God's peace and God's presence and God's blessing. So here, the psalmist is actually saying, remember when your face was shining on us, God. We need you to do that again. We need you to do that now because, God, it feels like you left. It feels like we don't know where you are. And so the psalmist goes on to say, he kind of repeats some of these themes. He says, God, it feels like you left us. It feels like our enemies have toppled over us. We don't understand our current reality, and God, where are you? And so what I want us to see from this communal psalm and for Platt Park as as a church, I want you to see that even though they felt like God left them and even though they felt like their enemies had toppled them and even though they felt like God had left them, they weren't silent. They were honest with God. They expressed their hearts and what needed to be said. And ultimately, they trusted on God's mercy. They trusted that God was a God who had saved and would save again. In the last uh, verse of this particular psalm, it repeats this refrain. It says, Restore us, Lord God Almighty, make your face shine on us that we may be saved. Like it's, it's pretty similar, right? But the big difference, the big difference is the, is the phrase, Lord God Almighty. 
which is Yahweh Elohim in Hebrew, which is the most personal name for God. So they're referring again to this intimacy, this face-to-facedness with the Lord. And this is not a lament at the end of this psalm. This is actually a praise. They're saying, God, we need you to be personal and intimate with us again. We need to feel you. God, will you come? So here's uh, three things I want you to take away from the lament psalms. When you lament to God, it actually means that you have hope. When you express an honest grief to the Lord, it doesn't mean you lack faith. It actually means that you hope for better. You know that God will make things right. And in some ways, it makes you like a secret agent of justice. Like you give voice to the voiceless, and you have hope for the orphan and the widow, and you can pray these ancient words and lift them up to the Lord, and you can carry people from all across the world as you give them back to God, knowing that the Spirit will hold those things for you. So when you lament, it actually means you have hope. And second, when you lament, it means that you can time travel. Okay, this is a really nerdy thing to say about the Psalms, but just go with me here for a second. So we exist in linear time, past, present, and future. And Walter Brueggemann says that the Psalms of lament are the Psalms of disorientation. And so if you are in lament, you are disoriented to the present, meaning you are looking backwards and say, hey, remember how it used to be? Like, why can't it be like that now? These two realities cannot be reconciled. And so to say this nerdy thing that you can time travel, you actually can. You can say, I can take my grief and my mourning that was in the past and in the present, and I can see God's hope across the full spectrum of time. Because when you lament, it is an act of hope. And finally, when you lament, you should know that you are never alone. The Psalms of Lament help us, help you as a congregation, care for one another in all seasons of life, no matter what you're going through. Now, Platte Park, y'all had this service last year on December 21st called the Longest Night Service. Longest night according to cosmic time of the sun and the moon. But many churches have picked up this tradition of having a lament service on, in that particular season, a couple of days before Christmas, right in the heart of Advent. Because for a lot of people, for a lot of us, we still carry our griefs and our burdens no matter what season it is. And so to bring all of your laments together and to share them, you no longer carry a burden by yourself. And when you, you aren't lamenting by yourself, you should also know that Christ laments with you. Now for me, the biggest lament, my season of lament was about two years ago. My, uh, I'm 31, so my, my parents divorced when I was 23 after 28 years of marriage. And it took me seven years to finally lament that particular grief. And I was in counseling at the time, which I would highly recommend for any season of life that you're in, and it was so, so helpful to me. But somehow this lament surfaced in me like right at the beginning of Advent. And I started to think like, God, how about a quieter time like January? Like how about like when people are skiing and are kind of bloated and don't want to go out socially anyways? Like how about that time? It's kind of quiet. Not this like really public Advent time where everyone's social and it's very joyful. And so for me, I felt like I was just crying all of the time. I would brush my teeth and I'd be crying. I would drive to the gym, crying at the gym, crying at school, crying library, crying. It was just for the entire season of Advent for that full month of December. Now this Psalm 80, it has a really good image for this. It describes it as a bowl full of tears and that you are in such grief that all you can do 
to eat and drink is to drink that bowl full of tears. And for me, it felt like it was not just one bowl. It felt like it was like an assembly line of bowls, like bowl, weep, next bowl, bowl, weep, next bowl, bowl, weep, next bowl. Just tears and tears and tears. It was like a faucet of grief. And when I went to church, I felt like, gosh, Advent is such a beautiful season of joy and wonder and expectation. And it seemed like the joy of the season was just in such contrast to my grief. They were like opposite ends of the magnet, just like repelling each other. And we w- when we would sing joyful, joyful, we adore, thee, we adore thee, it felt like my throat had been stung by like a thousand bees. And I couldn't like say it or sing anything. It was a passionate expression of grief. But what I also found was that I was not alone. I felt like my community, they would not let me choke on my tears. They would not let me suffocate and suffer with my tears alone. And I also felt like Jesus was so close to me in that time. It was like he would take every bowl and say, I will drink that for you. And he would drain it gladly for me every single time. So when you lament, you are not alone. Now look, I know lament can be kind of a heavy topic. Some of y'all just came back from July 4th and you're like, woo, church, fireworks. And we're like, let's cry together. Um, I know it can be a heavy topic. And some of you may be thinking, like, how do I learn more about this lament thing? Or what is it? Or I don't, I'm not really sure about it. And some of you may think, this is just way too sad. This is like a This Is Us rerun. Like, this is a show that's very, very sad. Um, but I want you to know that you don't know that you need lament until you are in lament. And when you, knowing that you, when you, you lament, you have hope. When you lament, you can time travel. And when you lament, you are not alone, that the laments of Christ are with you. That is the hope that you hold on to as an act of faith. So Platt Park, you practice communion every single week, and I can think of no better practice than to unify us together as a unified body of Christ with Christ's own lament through this practice of receiving his body and blood and going out through the power of the Spirit into the world. So as we close today, we'll put a few questions on the screen that I'd like for you to think and pray about as you approach the table today. And here are the questions. What lament is rising up in you? And second, what is unjust and tears your heart in a thousand pieces? Maybe it is a national tragedy. Maybe it's something going on in your community or your family or your church or your job or just inside of your heart and you're asking God, where are you? I invite you to bring those laments to the table today as we become reconciled with Christ again. So I end our lament today with a question. Can we trust God and still lament? And can we lament and still trust God? I think we can admit that life can be harsh. It can be harsh and we can feel broken by it, yet we need not despair. Because lament is an act of faith with our faithful God who walks with us no matter where we are in life. Amen. God, at the end of our lament today, We know that you are with us, that you are for us, and that you want to shine your face upon us. May we trust that you hold us together as a community, no matter where we are in life with you. Amen.